0: I'm uh, Nicholas of Capital Inc., Nicolas Bornodis. I would like to thank all of you for joining us uh, this traditional uh, session uh, that is uh, hosted uh, by Fixed Ratings. I'd like to thank uh, Greg for the long partnership we have, uh, for hosting this uh, very interesting panel year after year and for putting it together with uh, an amazing uh, group of panelists. So with my thanks, I will uh, turn it over to Greg uh, and I welcome the panelists uh, to the session. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Nicholas. It's uh, good to be back. Uh, as you said, we've, we've done this panel for uh, many, many years now. I always look forward to it. And uh, we'll, cover, uh, we'll, we'll cover the leverage profile of closing funds. We'll, we'll talk about recent uh, trends, how things have changed. Of uh, course, we'll uh, pay particular attention to the stress we've experienced in the first quarter and how that's impacted uh, closing funds and, and their leverage. Um, I'll, uh, my name name's uh, Greg Favelevich. I head up the US funds uh, group at Fitch Ratings. We assign ratings to notes and preferred shares issued by closing funds. Uh, and we, uh, we publish research uh, on uh, trends in the, in the sector and regulatory developments. Uh, and I'll let the, uh, the other panelists introduce themselves. Uh, John, maybe you want to start?
0: Okay, I'm John Brown. I'm a managing director at Barings, uh, based down here in Charlotte. Uh, Barings is an asset manager with about $350 billion of assets. And I'm a member of the private debt group.
2: Hi, so this is Chris Larson uh, with Franklin Templeton, uh, formerly of uh, Leg Mason, which was recently acquired by Franklin Templeton, Senior Product Manager, uh, responsible for the close end business here.
3: Hey, hello everyone, it's Amit Jain. I'm a Managing Director with Nomura Securities International in the Financial Institutions Group, where we cover asset managers on a variety of capital raising and strategic topics. Uh, and in particular, we've spent a lot of time recently around opportunities for closed-end funds to access leverage from different sources.
1: Thank you. All right, so let's dive right in. Okay, so for the first slide, uh, we, we like to do a bit of an overview of uh, leverage ratios of closed-end funds. Uh, leverage ratio essentially is just the, the amount of leverage divided by the total uh, market value of the assets. Um you know, essentially we we draw a lot of this data from public financials, and um, one thing I'd like to highlight is that you know there are some delays in uh, in the data uh, for example, some funds will report you know October November december um, so uh, they do this on a semi annual basis, and that's how we display the data so most of the data you'll see is as of second half of twenty nineteen and that's just because not all funds reported as of the first half of 2020, uh, which is unfortunate given uh, all that transpired in the first quarter. Uh, so we, we do plan to update the data um, and uh, publish something in the next uh, couple of weeks once everything is available. So we'll use the data we have as a reference point, and uh, we can talk to some of what we've seen happen in the first uh, in the first quarter. So here on the on the right side we see. The leverage ratios of all the municipal closing funds that we track; uh, these are not all necessarily Fitch rated, um, some so may be unrated, and, and you can see that they leverage ratios cluster kind of in the uh, area around high 30s, low, you know, maybe sometimes low 40s percent uh, on a taxable closing fund side. It's much more uh, dispersed. It really depends on the uh, you know, the sector and, and leverage management strategy. Uh, I think a lot of what drives the leverage ratios. Uh, managers think about them as uh, you know risk management, uh, so sort the of reason that municipal and municipal bond closing and funds have typically higher leverage ratios is given the relative stability of municipal bonds um, versus some of the other asset uh, asset classes and we 'll see that later in the, some of the data in the other slides um, besides the risk management perspective uh, there's of course uh, there are covenants built into fund documentation that would limit leverage, uh, and then of course ratings. Uh, from our side, we uh, we assess uh, you know, each portfolio and, and um, you know based on the potential volatility of the assets, I come up with a rating. Uh, some of those asset coverage tests are built into fund documentation that could also um, dictate where fun- how funds manage their leverage. Uh, one additional point I'd like to, uh, to bring up that's important, Fitch has recently uh, published an exposure draft proposing some fairly material changes to how we look at and uh, fund ratings. Um, we've been, maybe for a little bit of background, we've been rating and funds for maybe about 25 years or more, um, largely under a similar framework of looking at um, the assets in the fund and assessing their potential liquidity and stability. Uh, and coming up with asset coverage um, ratios and uh, assessing the funds on that basis. Um, And the reason we're changing the, uh, or we're proposing to change some of the methodology now is uh, not necessarily directly linked to COVID and what we've seen, though certainly um, the performance of certain funds during a COVID downturn um, has solidified some of our thinking around this. Uh, As I mentioned, we published an exposure draft, which means we've, put forward some proposals for how we we would like to change the methodology. Uh, And we're looking for market participants to provide comments. Uh, This comment period is open through September 21st. So if anybody would like to um, provide feedback, either supportive or or not, uh, we'd appreciate that. And please feel free to to reach out. Um, The exposure draft is available on our website. And if you reach out, I'm, I'm happy to share that. I won't go through all of the changes, but I'll mention some of the key ones. The, really, the, the main change is that, um, well, historically we've rated closing funds uh, often at the AAA uh, rating level, and that's given the, the stability we've seen over the many years that we've rated them. Um, we've never, never recorded a default on a closing fund obligation, neither in 2008 nor um, more recently in the first quarter or, or in other instances. So that's always supported the, the high ratings However, there are certain characteristics of uh, closing funds that um, you know, our thinking has evolved on, uh, and primarily the uh, the market value exposure and how quickly the, the profile of closing funds can, can change. Uh, so if, uh, if you think of uh, AAA rated obligations are meant to be, by definition, the most stable and um, and solid obligations. In a, in a closing fund, um, what we what we have and we've seen happen you know, more, more than once. And again, beyond just uh, the COVID-related stress recently, uh, you can have funds that have relatively high degrees of cushion to their asset coverage levels. And then in a matter of weeks or even days, that can get eroded pretty quickly. Um, and so, some of those characteristics we deem as not consistent with, with AAA uh, anymore. Uh, we know that other or other rationales it 's a little bit deeper in the uh, exposure draft I uh, urge everybody who's interested to read that, uh, but in practice, what this will mean is that um, primarily the uh, the municipal bond closing fund that we uh, rate those they invest in high grade municipal bonds are likely to be rated in the double a category um, pretty much all other asset classes are likely to be rated as high uh, as high as uh, single a so uh, funds they invest in uh, high yield municipal bonds, uh, high yield corporates, equities, convertibles. Uh, those are likely to be, uh, those are capped at uh, single A rating. So you'll, you'll see a bit more of bifurcation if the proposals are adopted as, as currently proposed. So I, uh, I don't want to spend all our time talking about that, uh, but if anybody would like to, to have more detail again, uh, please reach out, I'm happy to, uh, to do that. On that note, I'll Let's, let's go to the next slide. Um, okay, so what we have here is our kind of traditional slide, just updating the profile of uh, leverage in taxable closing funds. Again, this goes through the second half of 2019. We see a bit of a decline in leverage from 2018. That's driven primarily by uh, some of the uh, market volatility we've seen at the end of 2018, which was a fairly small scale relative to uh, the first quarter of this year. Uh, yet we've seen some deleveraging uh, at that time um, once we update our data, we expect to see a material decline in, in leverage. Uh, you can see uh, all the way to the left back in 2008 the type the magnitude of uh, reduction in leverage uh, and then in 2014, 15, 16 and driven by the um, performance of energy related funds, also some declines in leverage. So I expect 2020 will look uh, closer to, to 2008 uh, than, than 2016 so maybe on, on that note um chris turn it to you uh maybe on a fund manager perspective could you give us a bit of um an overview of how you look at managing leverage targets and like specifically for taxable uh closing funds and kind of pros and cons of of the different leverage forms uh sure
2: uh thanks and uh hello everyone um So, so yeah, I, I think every manager does it a little bit differently. Um, but generally what, what we find uh, at our firm is, you know, it's, it's a portfolio manager decision, you know, on leverage and on the leverage amount and on the, the source of leverage and each source source, as you can see here, that there's, there's a number of different options to, to how you can lever uh, your product. Um, they, they, each, they each come with some, with some pros and cons, right? So if you look at the, the, the biggest uh, bucket, which is the bank debt, those are you know, lines of credit which you, you have a, a access to a certain amount of capital the bank's willing to provide, you can draw it down, uh, and then you can pay it down relatively quickly. But it's typically a committed line, um, so you know it's there for you if, if you need it. Um, and then you have uh, repo. Uh, Which is something that's a little bit more market driven. So that is one where if the cost is better, you know, managers, you know, in our shop, if the repo market is more advantageous, they'll use some repo and maybe pay the line down to get a better uh, leverage cost. But again, there are market dynamics. So, you know, sometimes the the rates will, you know, they'll fluctuate, right? It's something that, that we're uh, always aware of. And, and then the, the, at the top, you have kind of the private preferreds and notes. Um, and those are more uh, generally not always fixed rate. Um, they're a little more permanent in the sense that you, you, you really don't, you can't really pay them down anytime you want without a big penalty. Um, and so typically you'll find uh, firms will put a little bit of that on and then they'll Augmented with kind of a line of credit or something else as far as targets I think what we would say is managers generally have a I would call it a comfort zone Of where they would like their leverage ratio to be and it's not that they're managing it uh, on a day-to-day basis But you know depending on their outlook, they'll either you know in our firm bill If they feel like it's a, it's a really advantageous time to go in and buy securities They'll increase the leverage and then when they feel like the market may be a little bit heady, they'll take the leverage down a little bit. And so not that they'll take it all the way off because there's obviously a positive carry and generally close ends as people know are, are designed for income. And so we'll use that to, to kind of increase or decrease the exposure and, and increase or decrease kind of your I'll call it risk in a way um, to the return Um, So when we're conservative, we'll take it down, Uh, but these are longer term views. So it's not not that we are dialing that leverage up and down every day or month, uh, but it's more, you know, if we think there's an opportunity over the next 12 to 18 months, we may increase it. And then we'll run at that rate for a while as that theme plays out. So I'll I'll turn it back to, to you, Greg. Thanks, Chris and
1: John. You as the investor in the in notes and preferred shares, you sit on the other side of that. Could you give us your perspective on what are you looking for when,
0: when you're looking at these securities? Yeah, I, I do sit on the on the other side um, in, in a number of ways. So so one, when I'm investing, I'm investing fixed. I'm investing relatively long. And by the other side, it's really the other side of the banks here. So the, the banks are, are investing shorter. The bank debt is, is is floating rate. The bank debt can be pre without uh, any penalty and so um, in times of market stress the first thing that most managers look to do is, is take down that take down that bank debt um, and I think that's one of the strengths of the structure in terms of the, the the underwriting analysis and what we're focused on of course we're going to be focused on the assets um, the quality of the assets uh, the diversification um, within that portfolio but What's equally important for me, and, and this is a little different from, from other types of analysis, is the liquidity of those assets. You know, I, I want to know that if there's a market event, the assets can be sold if needed to right size the portfolio. We'll talk a bit about um, structure. You know, one of the benefits of the structure, maximum leverage is um, called 33%. Maximum leverage, uh, that's, that's for debt. Mac- maximum leverage overall is 50%. So you know, overall, the portfolios have relatively low leverage. Um, I mentioned um, for, in my structures, at least, I'm investing relatively long. Secured, unsecured matters a lot less to me. What matters more is what institutions can get in front of me in my structure, what institutions can prime me. I wanna be side by side with that bank debt, with no assets or, or very few assets. Um, carved away from my structure. And then we take comfort from the 40 act protection. And um, we'll also have uh, those leverage limits, usually a 300% leverage limit for, for senior debt, and then it will go up to that 50% leverage limit. Um, yes, 300% asset coverage, that is, or 200% asset coverage, it equates to the 50% leverage for, for preferred.
1: I guess, John, mean, you sit kind of in between Chris and
3: and John. uh, Could you give us your perspective? Absolutely. So um, thanks, Greg, and uh, hello, everyone. So from from the banking side and the origination side, we see that there continues to be appetite across these different structures. Um, At my firm, Nomura, we are certainly involved in pretty much all of these with the exception of the plain bank debt, Uh, be it more derivative forms through repo, Um, some of the things that we can do for equity funds on the prime brokerage side, uh, stock loan agreement, et cetera. Uh, And then where I focus on is a little bit more akin to John's world, which is helping managers structure and uh, issue privately placed senior notes and preferreds or MERPs to those insurance companies like Barrick's. What I would say is that the, you know, from, from my perspective, for some of the reasons Chris mentioned in terms of the interest rate environment and the positive carry that leverage can provide for most of these income-oriented funds. Utilizing leverage is certainly a benefit to shareholders over time. And I think it's um, certainly a a, a way to differentiate the closed-end funds versus the plethora of investment options that investors, retail investors in particular, have at their disposal. So we're big proponents of utilizing leverage. Uh, We think that it makes sense to have a structural component to leverage as well as a ability to be tactical. So with that said, you know, a blend of both bank-oriented facilities and bank or bank-oriented kind of flexible leverage that can be toggled up and down, as well as utilizing some preferred shares. We think that that's a optimal blend to uh, provide managers the greatest degree of diversification, uh, the greatest degree of flexibility, and allow them to really utilize what the structure is meant for which is to take on leverage to provide positive carry uh, and the opportunity to maximize total return over time so we're big proponents of um, issuers tapping into these markets uh, specifically as it relates to private placements of course there's a cost disadvantage or they're more expensive than bank form shorter dated but locking in the term um, we think that it you know depending upon what the underlying strategy of the fund is it can be accretive to NAV um, and accretive to the dividend profile, again, depending upon the asset class. Um, it can be um, provide the opportunity to add fresh capital and take advantage of opportunities, tactical opportunities in the marketplace. Um, and frankly, the buy and hold investor base that these insurance companies represent, it's a friendly pair of hands. Um, there's governance advantages that we think make closed-end funds that have, lever- that have taken advantage of preferred shares privately placed to insurance companies, um, we think that they are less susceptible to activist um, behaviors and activist involvement. So we think there's a a good reason and rationale for issuers to be thoughtful, creative around all of these options, and in particular are very bullish on Merck's.
1: Thanks, Amit. And um, just before I move forward, Forgot to mention, uh, please submit your questions already. saw a couple of questions uh, come in. So uh, a few of those will be addressed during the presentation and we'll leave a few minutes for Q&A if we haven't addressed uh, all of them. Uh, So feel free to submit throughout the presentation or at the end. Okay. Let's move now to uh, the municipal closing fund side. Uh, They're uh, fairly stable um, leverage level over the last couple of years. Again, we have seen some deleveraging in the first quarter, but certainly not as much uh, as we've seen on the taxable side. Uh, again, this just goes back to the, the relatively uh, more stable nature of municipal bonds. Um, we have seen a bit more innovation there uh, over the last couple of years, kind of new types of products being launched. I mean, not necessarily revolutionary, but kind of tweaking uh, some of the existing products uh, to, to make them as efficient as possible.
2: Uh,
1: Chris, back to you, if you can give the perspective on the, on the muni side.
2: Sure, I, I think you know the muni space is, is honestly a, a, a great place to, to put in very long-term financing if you can get attractive rates. And it goes back to the stability of the assets. And, and as we all know, in, in munis and especially investment grade, munis the default rate is, is very low. So even if there is some price movement on the bonds, they, you know, they generally come back up to that par value and will get mature out or get refinanced out. So it's a, it's a great place to be, you know. After the uh, the auction rate market froze uh, in 2008, a couple of new types of preferreds that offer um, kind of a liquidity backstop uh, came into the market and really replaced the the auction rates substantially and and TOEs.
1: Okay. Thank you. Okay. So now moving more, more specifically to talk about what we've seen in the, in the first quarter, the dislocation. Um, here we've compiled NAV declines by sector, um, from peak to trough, they're about a month period, mid-February, mid-March. Uh, and these are just the fit rated funds. Um, now, from our perspective, during the volatility, we were in very close contact for all, with all of the managers, You know, some sometimes on the uh, you know, every every couple of days, uh, discussing with them on their plans, particularly the ones that are more exposed, like the MLP side. Um, now, uh, you can see here clearly the MLP or midstream space experienced really huge declines in valuations, much more than we've seen even in two thousand eight. Uh, other sectors relatively look better, but still equities and convertibles kind of average forty uh, percent or so. Uh, down, you know, from an NAV perspective. Recall that's exacerbated by, by leverage. I think the portfolio values uh, fell less than that. And on the right side, um, municipals kind of performed um, kind of the best. Uh, as was already mentioned, I think generally what we've seen is fund managers looking to, uh, to to reduce their most flexible form of leverage. So for uh, taxable funds, it would be the uh, repo reverse repos or bank for, bank debt. On municipal funds, uh, that could be TOBs. Um Chris, maybe going back to you, can you give us, uh, a, you know, your perspective on how funds reacted? Uh, and, and this is, um, you know, not not just for for MLPs. You know, actually, maybe best if I turn to the next slide, uh, which is our um, our data point that we did collect for the first half. So that's generally through kind of May or so of this year. So it reflects a downturn, reflects a lot of the deleveraging that happened for the MLP funds. So we can use that as a, as a reference point for some of the other funds where deleveraging happened on a less severe basis here in the MLP space, about 4 billion of leverage was was reduced, which is you know, quite a lot of assets being put into the market, about 72% of the, the starting leverage. Um, so, so Chris, maybe back to you now, if you can speak up, you know, about MLP specifically or, or, some of the other funds.
2: Uh, sure. So look in the, in earlier in the year, right. And the, during the market meltdown, um, there was a lot of stress across asset classes, which you can see in the prior slide. MLPs obviously were the hardest hit sector out there. Um, you know, and, and that's the one that was impacted. I would obviously the most, um, so as John had mentioned earlier, there are certain coverage ratios that you're required to maintain uh, across you know all funds. Where if you have senior securities, it's a 300% coverage test, which equates to 33% leverage, and with preferreds, it could be um, a 200% coverage test, which is 50% leverage. Um, within the MLP funds, you know we, we had a combination of line of credit notes and preferreds um, and you know when you when you look at that market and I was just looking at some numbers before the call from January 16th which was kind of the the, the high uh, in the year to March 18th MLP's declined about 69% and that's using the Hilarion MLP index and if you, you look at from March 2nd uh, to March 18th so a little over two weeks in that two week period, the Alarian the index was down 60%. So you had a very rapid decline. You know, in our funds, we historically have tried to maintain a pretty good downside buffer. So typically it was, you know, 45, 50% downside buffer before you're gonna run across your SEC coverage ratios. But obviously in that kind of decline, you know, we were, you know, we were obviously uh, very concerned about hitting those ratios and you know in that situation we had to raise some cash and we ended up you know paying down uh, some of the notes uh, to bring our coverage ratios back in line we did have some cash going into it and we, we had paid down and to John's point we had paid down the line of credit um, first because that's the easiest one to do and the least punitive to do um, so that's kind of the first quarter I think across you know you know, thing across our lineup, and and we have um, you know 25 uh, funds across our different uh, investment managers across all different sectors. You know, the, the MLPs were the ones that, that had obviously the most delevering. You know, the rest of the funds were pretty well able to weather the storm. So there really wasn't much of you know uh, situations where we were running up against the OREIAC coverage ratios. Um, so, I think, you know, having, you know, I guess, actively managing your leverage, um, making sure you have some downside cushion to absorb that volatility in the marketplace is really important, uh, especially in, a, you know, leverage strategies.
0: Thank you. And just just to dovetail some of, some of what, uh, what Chris was saying from, from an investor perspective, um, you know, what Chris is hinting at is, is that volatility was really unprecedented in that sector. Um, You know, no one had seen it before, and that includes the global financial crisis. And so, you know, for us, I can say first and foremost, every manager that we had exposure to in that sector did a great job of staying in front of us as investors and a great job of giving giving us the information that we needed to continue to make good, reasoned, sound decisions. So not based off of fear, but based off of data. But equally important is information that allowed us to update our clients because, of course, we were getting calls, especially the day where uh, oil traded below zero. That was, you know, with a lot of calls. Well, I was prepared for that because I had calls with at least three or four managers and I knew exactly what was going on there and exactly the difference between those trading characteristics and the, the trading dynamics and the underlying companies where we looked uh, at several portfolios and they had, you know, were predominantly, in, in some cases, these companies were predominantly natural gas, and that natural gas was needed to heat a Midwesterner's home
2: and make sure they had hot water.
0: Well, we knew those, those companies would be okay. But at the same time, I'm, I'm, I'm a debt lender. I'm, I'm, I'm a lender at the end of the day. I'm not looking to take equity risk. And so it was important that um, I stayed on, on, on top of this in close contact with the managers to understand what the deleveraging strategy would be. The last thing I'll say before turning it over, um, it it really, that, that environment where you had, again, volatility worse than the global financial crisis, the structure was tested during the global financial crisis, structure worked. The structure was tested again in March, the structure worked, it's very, very robust.
1: I Amit, mean, your, your perspective as well?
3: Yeah, I don't, I don't have a lot to add. I think uh, Chris and John made great points. And um, I would say that, the, again, this unprecedented market conditions, uh, extremely severe downside action in, in a short, concentrated period of time. And, you know, closed-end funds actually, I think, proved their mettle and uh, did quite well in managing through. sounds like there was good communication between the issuers and the end investors on the private side um so i think overall uh despite what was a, a terrifying environment to live through uh i think overall uh kudos to the entire community for for putting in procedures and structures in place that that seem to have held up reasonably well
1: and we we got one question um on this about why did mlp funds kind of, um stop paying dividends instead of deleveraging and i i I, I guess my answer would be: I think that things just move very quickly, and once you breach asset coverage requirements, you have, you have certain uh, steps you have to take. So stopping a bit dividend payments probably not going to be enough, and and going to be a bit too late. I don't know, if Chris, you'd agree with that?
2: Yeah, I guess. Yeah, it's, it, uh, I would say um, I know that is an option, right? So if you do breach your asset coverage, you could stop paying a dividend on the common shares. Um, until you come back in compliance with it. I think given the nature of the underlying assets and how quickly the market was moving, right, it, you know, every time the market would go down, your leverage is now increased that much more, right? And so at some point, it becomes, you become way, way over leveraged to a, a point where, you know, we just wouldn't be comfortable doing that. So that that's point one. And I think point two is that in the- When you have notes and preferreds outstanding um there are provisions where you could end up in an event of default right and if you if you go below those coverage ratios you can end up in an event of default and they can force you to repay the whole entire uh facility or a note or preferred and so you know it, it was you know in our view it was it was uh uh in the best interest of the investors to bring those, uh, or ensure that our coverage ratios were in line because of what the, you know, the terms and the documents.
1: Yeah, All right. So we have just a few minutes left. So uh, we, we received a question about costs and good uh, thing we have a slide on this. Uh, so we'll, maybe we'll start with the municipal side. Uh, again, recall this is data from uh, kind of prior to COVID and pricing adjusted since then. So. More relative perspective, uh, and uh, kind of hard sometimes to break by maturities and um, kind of when the facilities were put in place. But relatively, those are those are prices that, that we've seen um, kind of end of twenty nineteen. Chris, could you talk a little about how that got adjusted, and you know where you see right now?
2: Yeah, I mean uh, on the Uni side, you know what? The, the honestly that the rates right now, given short term rates are so low it's, you know, the, if you're using um, a BRDP a, a, a or something like that, that resets its rate every week or month, right? It's based off SIFMA typically or short-term reference rate. So those short-term rates are, are very low. So that cost is pretty low. Um, they do have a liquidity uh, function where it's, it's kind of like um, having a bank line of credit behind it so that if they become illiquid, the bank would buy it and take it on their balance sheet. There has been a little bit of pressure on that side to try and, you know, on those rates, but we haven't seen ours really move. So I guess it's it's kind of uh, situational specific.
1: Okay. And on the taxable side,
2: um, again,
1: some of the things is probably more, more different types of securities here. Um, Maybe, John, would you mind uh, talking a little bit about how you price, uh, how you look at these? And I believe you invest in notes and preferreds.
0: Sure, sure. And the caveat is, is this certainly has, has moved as well. Um, again, I'm investing fixed rate, so um, it absolutely has moved. Um, both spreads and rates uh, have, have, have come in dramatically, um, or I should say significantly since the beginning of the year. Um, in terms of how we price, um, many times we're, we're looking at where other transactions have been done recently in the market. We're also looking at public trading comps, and the public trading comps are, are difficult to find. And so um, what we do in terms of you know, kind of a back-end kind of way is look at high-quality banks and asset managers. I have, um, I'll have choose BlackRock as an example, and let's just say, all right, well, you know, where is their debt trading in the market? And then we'll add a premium to that, um, a premium anywhere from, from uh, a low of 25 to a high of call it 70 basis points. Um, in terms of, and, and then the, the nuance to that is, as you get into the lower quality portfolios, and I'll define low quality here, less as, debt versus equity, but that's certainly a a component of it. So investment-grade equity is going to trade tighter and the rate will be lower. I'm sorry, investment-grade debt will be lower and will trade tighter than, let's say, equity. Um, But the component is the liquidity of the underlying assets that I mentioned earlier. When you start adding more illiquid assets, the extreme being, um, let's take BDCs, um, you know, the rate is totally different. So I'll, I'll, I'll leave BDCs out of this conversation. Um, what I'm driving towards is for a, a liquid portfolio on the senior debt side. You know, if I saw a four today, I'd fall off my seat with excitement. You know, I don't think we're going to see many, many, many fours in this market. Instead, I think we're somewhere around 2.8 to 3% on a yield basis. Thank you. and
1: I and mean, um, we have I'm getting some echo there i think we have two minutes left so maybe if we could spend you know one minute and um, do you feel after the dislocation we've seen in the first quarter the investors still have demand for for these type of securities is it in certain sectors and how do you feel about this
3: yes absolutely um, just to, to round out the point on pricing uh, anything on the taxable side that's linked to a short-term rate, so floating rate, repo, um, bank facilities, those are all, again, significantly changed from what's displayed on this page as LIBOR has gone to zero and uh, seems like it will be stuck there for quite some time. So uh, we're looking at, you know, call it 150, 200 basis points below what's been displayed here. Um, so it obviously accrues to the benefit of an issuer right now to, to take advantage. Um, We definitely are seeing uh, appetite and demand from on the private placement side as well. We've spoken to, of course, there's probably a cohort of maybe uh, a dozen or so regular investors in terms of insurance companies that have gotten comfortable with the 40 Act structure, that have participated in deals, that have gotten their committees uh, to fully understand the nuances of 40 Act uh, regulations and and the various covenants. Um, We've been in discussion with about a half dozen other uh, potential investors that we think will uh, help to um, create improve pricing for issuers as, uh, as more investors start to look at this, this structure, understand it, um, and again, it's a yield-starved environment for the insurance companies as well. They're looking for creative ways to put their capital to work, and um, when you look at the default history and really kind of the, what we think is relatively uh, strong credits um, in terms of how closed-end funds are structured, We think that there will be continued new interest. We're seeing it already. Uh, So we do expect that that's a positive trend uh, for issuers and and shareholders.
1: Okay, Thank you. Last slide I'm going to hit. Uh, This is our traditional annual bank league tables for the taxable side. Um, uh, You can see the the changes on the right side. Uh, I'm going to stop sharing now so we we can get any last question. And I think we're pretty much out of time uh but I will note we have seen some uh changes in the counterparties recently uh you know, some some banks are getting out of this more on a municipal side but um after after the OA crisis we'll also seen some counterparties leave the the market um and so we'll you know and others have come in so we'll we'll see how uh this develops um Guys, any anything, any last questions you uh, or last points you'd like to add? No, okay. I think we're pretty much um, out of time. Oh, we have, I'm told we have two minutes left. Uh, so, so there was one additional question. Uh, I think somebody mentioned, uh, you know, the IPO market, and we've seen it inclusion in some more illiquid assets and you know, the IPO market gets more creative. Uh, how does that impact the, the, the appetite for leverage and the type of leverage?
2: Yeah, I, I'll, I'll, I guess I'll answer that. We haven't been in the market with anything new, uh, this year, but I just, from, you know, our product lineup and, and working with banks, um, Yeah, the market has been creative. Uh, I would say, you know, the bank lending is really dependent on the underlying assets. So for a line of credit, for example, if there are illiquid privates, you're really not gonna get much credit for those, at least in in my experience, just because, you know, what they're concerned is access to liquidity if they need it. And so, you know, could it impact it? Maybe, but when you think about from a bank's perspective, you know, when they're lending to all different types of companies and entities, you know, the, the 40 act protection with the 300% coverage ratio is pretty attractive, right? So it gives them a pretty big buffer uh, around, you know, potential losses. And so I, I don't think it should have that big of an impact. I mean, unless you have a portfolio of 100% of liquids or something like that.
0: Yeah, just to add to that, you are seeing, uh, even in the fixed rate structures, Uh, evolve um, to allow for some of it in in, in a very limited way. So a 5% bucket, a 10% bucket, a 15% bucket. The reality is for a lot of equity managers, they've they've noticed that, you know, you have a lot of companies, a lot of venture companies are staying private much longer. A lot of companies that aren't public and still called venture are only called venture in name, you know, in terms of, of, of their size, uh, the fact that they've got strong business models and their private investor base at that point, uh, they're already at the point where they would be a mega cap company um, in order to have access to you know, the full universe of opportunities. You're seeing equity managers have to dip into you know, some of those pre IPO late stage venture companies. Um, and the structure, again, has has evolved to allow for some of that. But again, keeping it relatively limited. Thank you.
1: So um, I think we, we could probably talk about this for, for a while longer. I think there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of interesting things to say, but fortunately our time is up. Uh, and so I'd like to thank our, our panelists very much for, uh, for joining and providing their insights. Uh, if anybody's interested in the, uh, in the slides, please feel free to reach out. We'll be happy to share them. And so until uh, I guess next year or a couple of months from now, uh, uh, have a good day, you.
2: Thank you.
3: Thank you everyone. Thank you. Thanks.